We are King Uzziah tonight. Second Kings chapter 15. Uzziah is actually the shortened version, but he's known better by that one. In Second Kings chapter 15, it's where we begin in the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel. Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jacoliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death, so he dwelt in an isolated house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the royal house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Azariah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Uh, Kind of a concise commentary about this this guy, and actually there's a whole lot more detail to give on him than, than kings did, and you find out that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but then the Lord struck him. So it really just doesn't, I'm not sure why they do this. A guy who was around for 52 years as, as king in one capacity or another. And that's really all that you, you did with him. But that's how the writer saw it. Saw what was important to put down. Chronicles gave us a lot more information. But let's just take a look at what the, we have here from, from Kings before we go over into Chronicles. We see that he was the son of Amaziah. Amaziah was a good king until he he fell by worshiping the idols from the folks that he conquered and brought back. And that didn't work out so well. It wasn't quite a pride issue with him. He did go after the king of Israel, but it sounds like from the way the account is laid out that uh, he had a, a pride issue. And that was not the case. They had to come and they made war, did some war acts against them. But uh, the reason that he lost was because of the idols that he had brought in. One thing that he does know, probably the, the thing that he spent the most amount of time on, was that the high places were not removed. Now, think about this. We've gone through a number of the kings. What king removed the high places so far that we've come into so far? Has any king removed the high places? Not a single one. Not a single one has removed the high places. They're all still there. And, but it's always noted in all of the kings that the high places were not removed. Now, if it goes on king after king, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, at one point, does it become less important? Apparently not. <laughs> Apparently, it is still important. Isn't it something that's something that every king has disregarded as not being important enough to do anything about it? God keeps making a note about their, about their reign. All the other things, good, bad, indifferent, whatever it is, we don't mention that. But this one we keep bringing up. There are some things that men, after decade after decade, generation after generation, has disregarded as unimportant, and God still considers it to be important. And we know it from His Word. And every, every king that we write down about this, we're looking back in history, we're going back in history and looking at these guys. Every time, the high places are not removed. The people still went up there and sacrificed. Now, for the folks, it was, it was convenience. They like the convenience of the worship on the high places instead of having to go all the way to Jerusalem for these things. So it says the Lord struck the king and he became a leper. Now, he, it says he reigned for 52 years. He was not reigning on his own for 52 years, though. 
If you go through the history of, uh, of this guy, he took over as a co-regent for his father, Amaziah. Remember, he was, he was put out there for, for a bit. From about 768, well, I'm sorry, from about 791, 790, somewhere in there, to about 768, 767. Around 767, in there, 768, somewhere in that time, to about 751, he reigned by himself. That's about 16 years. So out of a 52-year reign, he reigned 16 years of it by himself. The beginning part, his father Amaziah was technically the king, but he was in isolation uh, for a number of different reasons. He was, uh, he was away People rebelled against him. He was in hiding. Things like that was, was going on. Probably some other, other things as well. I was surprised that this, this uh, time was as long as it was. And at the end, while he was a leper, of course, he was in isolation himself. He could not be coming out with all the, all the people. So Jotham, his son, was the king who carried out all the stuff. But, of course, he still had influence in it. He could still decide things. His mind was still working okay. So that happened for... Uh, for a while as, as well. About 11 years, Jotham reigned while his father was still alive. Then eventually he dies and he gets buried. But let's go over to, to Chronicles and take a look at some more details of the story here. In verse 1 of Second Chronicles 26, Now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Eleth and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Does not compare him to David, compares him to his father. There's, a, I think, uh, only one or two, I think only one, that's compared to David, in that they did good as David did. Hezekiah comes to mind. Perhaps, uh, well, let's, let's, let's keep on going. We didn't go into verse 5. In verse 5, he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Well, that's the case with a lot of folks. You know, as long as they sought the Lord, God made them to prosper. But somewhere along the way, they decide that there's a better way. And we've seen this a number of times. Saul, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Then he kind of wandered away. Jeroboam wandered away. Solomon wandered away. David wandered away but came back. And God even exhorted him, Hey, why'd you wander away? If you were lacking something, I would have given it to you. Just ask. But we know that there's others in the Bible too who, who wandered away. Who as long as someone was around, influencing them, helping them, they did well. Well, Zechariah fulfilled this need. Perhaps he died. Somehow his influence seems to have been lost. But it describes him as one who had understanding in the visions of God. So he would have these visions or visions would come or he would see things in the word. However it was, but he had understanding. He would counsel him along the lines of the word of God and the king listened to him. So he was, he was good. I put it in this in your outline. It's amazing how much certain people that God put in our lives stabilize us in ways we may not see or feel. But these are important. And the tendency is to get away from the stabilizing factors. And of course, this is what the enemy wants to do. The enemy wants to get us away from whatever it is that stabilizes us. 
Now you look at uh, children, they have stabilizing factors of a, of a good solid mom and dad. And the enemy continually comes against them to separate them from the mom and dad. How many times have we seen children who became rebellious, ran away from home, did things against uh, what their parents said, and other influences came in, they became unstable, but did they come back to the parents? No, they keep on going in the, the way of their friends and the, the way of the people that are pushing them in the area of drugs or whatever kind of things, that uh, sinful things that they're supposed to be doing. And they get away from that stabilizing influence and we see that their lives fall apart. They end up in jail. They end up on the streets. They end up in poor paying jobs. They end up... All, and, it's, and you just wonder, why can't you just go back to how things... Why did you rebel against that? We saw this, the parable in the, in the Word of God where the son rebelled against the father. And he went out and spent all his money. Pretty soon he ends up in a, in a pig pen. But it says he came to his senses. <laughs> he finally came to his senses and he went back and he, he did something. But that's uh, certainly an influence that's there. Uh, children that are, are, are in school or even in college, they have professors, they have people that are along there to, to help them out and to, to guide them. And some of them are godly people. Then as long as they seek after these folks to, to have godly counsel, they do well and they go in a good direction. But then all of a sudden, it seems like something happens to them and they get their own direction and they get apart from those, those particular stabilizing forces. And it's, uh, it's not good for them. There, uh, in this case, we have priest. We've seen this a couple of times where there was a priest that was there. And as long as the priest was influencing the, uh, the king, Jehoiada, he was, he was one of them. Zechariah here is another one. Uh, certain prophets would come along and they would influence kings. They would influence people. And they would, well, they would help them. They don't realize how much of a st- stability uh, factor that they were in their lives. But once they're gone, they begin to go after another thing. We will have influencing factors in our life. The thing is, how much do we hang on to the good ones and how much do we let go of the old ones? So I put some things in there. What can people stabilize us with? What kind of things can people come along and stabilize us with? Well, the first one's real easy. It's the Word of God. We all know that the Word of God is a stabilizing force. And people who can come along and can teach us the Word of God, people can come along who can uh, remind us of what the Word of God says, who can remind us of the principles of the Word of God, these folks are stabilizing factors, stabilizing forces in our life. They won't always be there. There are times, Jehoiada died. Eventually he, he died, he outlived the king. And uh, the same thing here with, with uh, Zechariah, something happened to him, either he died, some, somehow the influence was lost. We probably assume that he, he died. He was probably older than the, than the king that was there. But these are people who come on in and they can give the word. They can give the, the message from God and help us out with that. A second one is prayer. There are people that God has put in our lives that are, are skilled in the area of prayer. And they can pray for us and they can <clears throat> pray with us and they can help us in the area of prayer. Counsel. There are some people who come along and they just have godly counsel. And if you go and talk to them about a thing, they just give you good godly counsel on, on the matter. And if they go away, they get replaced with people who give bad counsel. And uh, I was listening to uh, Keith Moore, and I, I was going to write this down. I didn't write it down yet. I had to um, uh, get this quote down here. I wanted to put it in a bulletin or do something with it anyway. But he was, uh, he was saying, wisdom, uh, wisdom is knowing the right thing to do, which we've heard before. He said, godly wisdom is knowing what God wants us to do. And that's what 
it's good to have counsel in our lives that can tell us what God wants us to do. Here's a fourth one, proper encouragement. There are some people who can just encourage us. Not everyone gets encouraged the same way. And you have to find people that can come along and encourage you the right way. They may not be people who, uh, who, who know how to break down the Word of God in your life. They may not even be people who know how to get into the throne room of God and pray. But they're people who can encourage you. There are people who can just get in there and encourage you. And it depends on what it is that you want to do. Every, you might have one person, one or two people who encourage you in this area and some other folks that encourage you in this area. Of course, whatever area they're going to encourage you in, they ought to have some knowledge about it. You know, some people encourage you in the area of work or the, the, the area of uh, 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 expertise that you, that you might have. But they have to, have to be in that. Susan's a writer, so she needs to find people who write to encourage her in that. Because if you don't write, you're going to have a hard time encouraging someone who writes because you don't know the same things that you, that you face. You know, <laughs> you need folks that are, are like that. When we used to be at college and we were running cross-country, well, the other cross-country runners, not too many of them were spiritual. I mean, all of them were born-again Christians, but just not too many of them were spiritual. Not too many of them cared about that, but they knew how to encourage you to get you along. Now, how you encourage somebody in, in our area was very different from how you would encourage people in other areas. And they had to understand how to do that. Because, you know, we're kind of rough with each other. It was not a gentle place. It was not a place that you, you have, oh, are you having a hard time today? Oh, that's a, tell me about your hard time that you have. No, that's not how we encouraged each other. You know, there was some name calling that went on, you know, <laughs> and, and telling people to get moving and to, and to get going. And, uh, but when you're, when you're in the midst of a race, when you're in the midst of a hard workout, you don't need somebody coming along and, and trying to have you cry on their shoulder. You need somebody who's going to set yourself on, on fire. And uh, if you go out and you do some, some workout routines, the, the good instructors are people who know how to get under your skin and get you to move. That's an encourager. They're encouraging. And that's always different. But who are those people that can really encourage you in those areas as you need it? Proper encouragement. Have you ever had people who come up and try and encourage you in an area and you're thinking, this is a waste of time. Why am I listening to what you have to say? It's not helping me at all. I'm not feeling better about what I'm doing. <laughs> you need people who can come along and give you proper encouragement. That may be a, a, a bunch of different folks, depending upon which role it is that you have going on. But these are people that stabilize you. They keep encouraging you in the way in which you are going. Uh, friendship. There are some people, they may not be a lot of things, but they are a good friend. And you need to have some folks in there. Don't expect friends to do everything in your life. One of the persons who, um, who was a, a good teacher in my life, I knew would never be a friend. I, just, I knew they would never be a friend. Could tell, you know, they just were, were different personalities uh, so I just gleaned off of them from a teacher-student point of view, not as a never, never sought after them for any kind of a friendship, anything of that nature. But there are people that are just good friends, just people that are, are good friends. Maybe you want to go and do something together, and uh, you can be encouraged in that. You know, you go to dinner, you go to a movie, you just do some fun things, friends things together. These are people that are in your life that are stabilized. They, they help stabilize you. Uh, correction. Sometimes we all need correction. 
And who are the people that do that? Now, sometimes it might be a friend. Maybe a friend can come along and they can be a, a, a friend and a corrector. Maybe the people who encourage you. Maybe the people that counsel you. Maybe that role can be covered with someone else in some of those other areas. But somebody in your life needs to be able to speak correction to you. Otherwise, you'll never, you, you, your stability will be lost. Because we all need somebody who can step back outside and begin to look at where we're going and say, hold on a minute, why are you doing that? And not everybody has the, the right to do that. Now, you, this may rotate too. You know, I don't know how many, I was just listening to somebody the, this week when I was in the shop. I was doing some sanding, had somebody on the background uh, listening to them. And they said the same thing that I've, so I've seen, I've other other people, I've told you this before, but how many people come up, and here's another, he said exactly the same thing. How many people came up to him and said, Pastor, if you ever get anything from me, if you ever see me getting off, let me know. You have an open road to, to let me know about these things. And sure enough, as they got off, that road closed. <laughs> and I, I tell you, I've had people tell me that on a regular basis, oh, please, if anything ever happens, if I'm ever getting off, just stop me and tell me about it and get me back on the right track. And sure enough, first time they got off and they started doing something, you get in there and try and correct them, shut it off. Shut it off. Don't even call you on the phone anymore. <laughs> Don't even respond to anything. It's just cut off. It's gone. And uh, it's not the first time. You know, we've, we've had some folks, you know, my wife and I got... Uh, to uh, real open, real involved. Uh, some folks were, were close by. One of them used to have us calling us because uh, they needed somebody to babysit their kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had emergencies that would come up. An emergency came up, they would call us up because uh, we were close by and, and uh, help us out with that. And then they got off. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't take any phone calls. Wouldn't do, <laughs> one even knocked on, went up to their door, knocked on the door. Their kids answered the door. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, one inside to get mommy. Uh, she said she's in the shower. She can't come right now. <laughs> I just kind of laughed at you. Yeah, okay. The middle of the day, you're in the shower. Kids are all running around the house. All right, we'll, we'll buy that one. And um, so, you know, it's, but you have to stay open to it because correction when it comes is never easy. But it is something that comes along and it's important. Uh, the only time you need correction is when we're off. And if you don't listen to it, we get ourselves into trouble. We look in the, in the Bible and we see how many kings had gotten off and God sent prophets to correct them. What did they do? Most of the time, killed them, <laughs> put them in prison, did all kinds of nasty things to them. Very seldom do we see the response that David did. Very seldom do we see that. Most of them were very, very hard to them. And we saw their life spin out of control. How many Christians do you think have read over those things and said, you know what? (laughs) I am not going to let that happen to me. But you see, once we start getting off, then off seems to be the right way. And so then people who come along and say, you're off, get over here. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. No, no, no. I want to be over here. This is where I'm at now. This is the way, I, and if you're not going to see that, I'm going to go away from you. And they do that. Correction is a hard thing to take. There might be some other factors we, that we can put in there, but these are things that people can stabilize us with. Do you have people in your life that speak the word, that are prayer, prayer folks, counsel, offer proper encouragement, friendship, correction? 
Now, here's the question. Can we get all these from God? Can God enlighten you on the word? Can God enlighten you in the area of prayer? Can God help us in the area of prayer? Doesn't it say that Jesus intercedes for us? Can God give us counsel? Absolutely can. Can God give us proper encouragement? Absolutely. Can God give be a friend? Absolutely. Can God give us correction? Yeah. God can do all of these. Now, here's the question. Should we get all this from God? Now, here's the thing. The real easy answer on this is, no, of course not. We need to have other people in our life to, to do this. But <clears throat> let me ask you this. Who did Moses go to for counsel? Now, early on, we saw he had counsel from Jethro. Was there ever a time that he got counsel from Aaron? Was there ever a time he got counsel from Miriam? Caleb? uh, Joshua? Never saw it. Who does Moses get his counsel from? You have to say he got it from God, didn't you? Who's Moses' friend? Hmm. Who teaches Moses the word? (laughs) Who encouraged Moses? (laughs) Is there any person in that two to four million group that encouraged Moses? Who gave Moses correction? Only one, wasn't there? Now, early on, there were probably other people. But as we get to the latter end of of his, the last stage of his life, the beginning part of that 40 years, there were some other people who came along, Jethro and some others. But after a while, there wasn't anybody, was there? The higher you get up in God's kingdom the less people there are to rely on. Look at Elijah. Whom did Elijah have to rely on? How about Elisha? Now, Elisha seemed to have some others around there, but we really don't see anybody instructing Elisha. You see Elisha instructing others, giving counsel to others. But we really don't see... that. It seems that Elisha was let down by a number of uh, people that he brought into a close circle as his assistant because he keeps changing them out. Gehazi failed him. He went off. Who taught Jesus? Who taught Paul? Now, you look at Paul, and in the beginning, Barnabas did. Barnabas pulled him aside and helped him out on some things. And uh, in the beginning, when you see the partnership between Paul and Barnabas, it is called Barnabas and Paul. So who would be the forefront of that? He seemed to be the lead guy. But then after a while, Paul began to surpass him. And it became Paul and Barnabas. And Paul was no longer taking the instruction from Barnabas. In fact, it seemed like he was given some. Who taught Peter? Who instructed Peter? Now, we know in the beginning, he got a lot of instruction. He got a lot of correction. <laughs> but as things went, went on, that wasn't the case. How about John? Towards the end of John's life, who instructed John? You think anyone would have risen up and said, John, let me pull you aside for a minute here. Oh, come here. Come here. <laughs> he was revered. And how much John wrote about how we, how we should walk in the area of love and, and things like this. There is a time in your Christian walk, if you get there. Not everybody did. We can count on, what, two hands? All the people in the Word of God who hit those kind of levels. But up until then... We need to have some folks in our life. But we can get to the point where people around us have instructed us, counseled us, friended us, 
taught us so much that we can no longer depend on them. We have to depend on that direct line to the God. And that is the ultimate place to get to. But if you get into that too soon, you will find yourself spiraling out of control and going down in the wrong direction. See, John got to a point in his life where he could find people that were off almost instantly. Paul the same way. Jesus certainly was, was that way. And that's a place that we're going to eventually be able to get to if we keep walking with God and if we keep going in that way. But in the meantime, we need to have people in our life that are able to help us out with these things. Paul continually had people like the Timothys and the Silases and the, the people that he could instruct and people that he could help. That was, that was important to do. Can we get all these things from God? Absolutely we can. Once we get ourselves in a place where we can receive without any bias. Most of the time, people receive from God with a bias. Here's your case in point. How many people have come up to you and said, well, the Lord told me, and as soon as they open their mouth about what it is, you say, dear Lord, how did they get that? You know from the Word of God directly contradicts what it is they said they got. And they don't want to hear it. You can say, but what it, the Word of God says this. No, I don't believe that. This is what God told me. This is what, um, this is what the Lord said. You'll have people, and uh, I've heard, I've, I've not met people like this directly, or at least they haven't said anything like this to me, but I've heard other ministers who have said, people have come up to them, I had a vision, and an angel appeared to me and said this. And they tried to instruct them, but the Word of God says this. I don't care. This is what the angel said. Mm. See, we've got to be careful that we don't get distracted like in that way. John, Peter, James, Paul, early on in their lives, could have been distracted by things like this. But they became so stable in the things of God and kept going on. The Moseses, that they weren't getting pulled off. Now, you get into those areas and you find out like Moses did, they're in a whole lot of room for error. There's not much room for error. So be careful what you uh, look for. Those folks that were in that, that, that spot, one mistake, two mistakes, marked our whole life. Send them down a wrong, wrong sometimes send them down a the wrong road. But there are stabilizing forces with us. The enemy's purpose is to try and get you separated from the things that stabilize you. Now, eventually, some of those things are going to go away. You know, Brother Hagen died. He was one of our stabilizing forces. Spoke a lot of things. And eventually, you know, most times we have stabilizing forces that are older than us. So more than likely, they're going to die before we do. They need to be replaced. You need to have other replacements that come in. Other people that can can come in and take up that prayer role, that counseling role. That can help you in these, these things. Don't become an island so soon that you aren't ready for it. There may be times that you're on an island and it seems like you're by yourself. It's a hard place to be. And it's a place like Elijah that can result in depression, isolation, sadness, despair, if you aren't ready for it. And if you get into that spot, 
and you're walking like Elijah did, you'll get the same kind of response from God. What are you doing here? <laughs> he, he, he's not necessarily the most sympathetic person along those, those lines. What are you doing here? Verse 6. Now he went out and made war against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath, the wall of Jebna, and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities around Ashdod and among the Philistines. Built cities amongst his enemies. <laughs> God helped him against the Philistines, against the Arabians who lived in, in Gerbal, and against the Munites. Also the Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah. His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for he became exceedingly strong. He had some very successful wars. He took some people that were enemies and conquered them. And some of the kings that had come before him, they, they lost a lot. To, they lost some land. They lost some cities. They lost some things to these, these folks. He went back there and he took them on. Verse 9, And Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the corner buttress of the wall that he fortified them. He also built towers in the desert. He dug many wells, for he had much livestock, both in the lowlands and in the plains. He also had farmers and vine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved the soil. That's an unusual thing to say. But he loved the soil. But he built all these towers. He obviously fixed the wall <coughs> that had been torn down by the, uh, under his, his uh, father's reign from uh, when Israel came down in there. So he built all these towers. He fortified the whole city or the whole, uh, the whole land. He made it stronger. Moreover, verse 11, Uzziah had an army of fighting men who went out to war by companies according to the number on their roll as prepared by Jael, the scribe, and Messiah, the officer, under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's captains. The total number of chief officers of the mighty men of valor was 2,600. That's the chief officers. And under their authority was an army of 307,000 307,500 that made war with mighty power. That's really getting down to the specifics, how many people you got. They helped the king against the enemy. Then Uzziah prepared for them, for the entire army, shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and slings to cast stones. So you've got 370,500. 307,500. You've got to buy spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and slings, shields the whole, for every single one of them. That's a lot. Can't send an army out without their proper tools. They've got to have the tools to do it with. And he made devices in Jerusalem invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. So his fame spread far and wide. He made devices. Now, whether they were ones of his own doing, which most uh, historians feel that they were, or if they were all just people in his, his army did it, invented by the skillful men or invented for the skillful men to, to be able to use these. But he had, what they did was they made and we don't think too much of this today because we think of them as, as just being there. But he, in these towers, he made devices that would automatically shoot arrows and fling stones. He made devices that would be able to, to do this. And apparently that was new. So this little country down here is reinventing warfare. 
know, we think of the things that we've done. And our country has reinvented warfare so many times. And um, no one has come close to the inventions in warfare that the United States has. No one. There's not a single one, not even Russia. Russia is so far behind our technology. It's incredible. And if, if, I don't know if any of folks watch this, but uh, Christian and I, we used to sit around, we watch uh, uh, one of the military shows that would have all the different toys they made for these guys to play with. <laughs> and, oh, I tell you, I just love some of these things. They had one, the, with the little Hummercraft, uh, they would, uh, the Hummer, they would have that driving on out there. Well, they put a device in this that if people shot at you and they were in the woods, in the woods it would echo, the shot would echo, you couldn't really listen to it and figure out where it was. But this thing couldn't be fooled. It's listening all the time. If they shoot, ah, it pinpoints, he's right there. And it lines up the barrel of the gun to take them out. So if you shoot them, you're dead. And that's just a small little, that they reinvented grenades. What they made grenades do was just incredible. They don't just have grenades that you throw and blow stuff up or throw stuff out. They had grenades for every single person. They had guns that would shoot the grenades that you could carry and have uh, six different types of grenades in the, or six, six grenades that would shoot and bang, 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 one to open up a door or uh, open up a wall or just all kinds of things that these things would do. Just amazing. But then, of course, we reinvented with the, uh, with the missiles. Back in World War I, World War II, you had a bomber. They would fly over a target. They would open up the bay, and they would just drop all the bombs and hope they hit something good. They might hit civilian targets. They might hit military targets. They would hit whatever. And uh, it was devastating. And then we reinvented it, and we came up with a Tomahawk cruise missile, and we could shoot this from a submarine and nail whatever target we want wanted within a football field. I think now they've even got more specific, but originally it was, it was that way. Even in World War II, we had the Missouri-class uh, battleships. And I heard somebody saying that it was like one of their guns, one of the guns was on there, it was like launching a Volkswagen from 25 miles out and hitting a football field. That was in World War II. Absolutely incredible, the things that we have now we have laser-guided stuff, and we have guys that will get out there. They just point the laser at it. Then you just drop the bomb. The bomb finds the laser. You don't have to aim the thing. Just drop it. It'll find the laser. Bam, right on into totally reinvented warfare. Well, that's what he did in his day. He came up with some things to be able to do in warfare that other armies didn't have. Man, how are we going to come against that? He's got this thing over here, and this is what it does. God blessed them. Either he had real good people who got... Uh, Inventions, or God gave it to them in the night, whatever it might be. But all these things were going. So this, this is a whole lot more of an account than Sick and Kings gives us. We see that uh, this guy did pretty well. But when he was strong, verse 16, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Well, this happens sometimes. <laughs> you know, people become strong and they begin to think, well, I'm my own person. I'm, I'm good. You know, people, whatever it is that you become strong in. You can be in prayer and, and just things be, seem to be happening in the area of prayer. And boy, God is, ought to be glad to have me on his team. I mean, no one can pray like I can pray. Maybe there's a, 
a person in the Word, they're getting revelations and revelations and revelations in the Word, and they begin to think, boy, God is glad to have me on. I probably know more about the Word of God than God does. <laughs> this is the kind of thing that you can raise yourself up and begin to think that. Whereas the more that you learn in the Word of God, it should tell you, the less you know. <laughs> but he didn't do that. And when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord. Now, don't think one day he just woke up and said, you know what? I'm going to go into the temple of the Lord and I'm going to be a priest. <laughs> this is something that he begins to formulate in his mind. He begins to think about. He begins to meditate on. He begins to, hmm, I bet you I can go ahead and do this. I bet you I can go and to, to step out in this particular way. Now, if he had people in his life who were counseling him, who were correcting him, if he had that uh, priest in his life still, who would say, well, hold on a minute. You're, why do you want to do this? This is what the Bible says about this. This is what the Word of God says. You don't want to do this. You don't want to go in this direction. Would have told him. And he would have been corrected early on and probably wouldn't have gone in this direction. But he didn't have the people in his life to, to stabilize him, to correct him, to appoint him. In. And so he begins to think about this and think about this and think about this. And then he begins to say, you know what? There's nothing stopping me. And this is fanned on by the enemy. The enemy loves to put us in a bad position. Enemies just tell yeah, you ought to be in there. You ought to go in there. You're a better priest than those priests are. You know more about God's blessed you more in this area of being a king. You should step in the area of being priest. You'd be better off than those, those guys. So one morning he came on over. He's not just going into the temple. He's been in the temple before. But he's going in not just in the area where he's supposed to be in. He's going into the area where the priests are supposed to be. And he's going in to burn incense. Now, remember what happened in the Old Testament, children of Israel in the wilderness. And a certain group of people who were Levites decided we can burn incense as good as Aaron can. We're going to do it. And Moses said, all right, you all get your censers and Aaron will get his censer and we'll all burn before the Lord. And let's see what happens. <laughs> and apparently God was not too impressed with their burning because he burned them up. And just Aaron was, uh, was left on it. But somehow he forgot that. You would think that he would not have forgotten that story. You know, we've got to remember, we're in the New Testament era. We've got a lot more Bible than they did. Amen. They didn't have as much Bible. So you would think that the stories that were there, they knew them really well. And that's one of those stories that stands out a little bit. You know, people burning up. That's, uh, that's kind of memorable. But he decided to go in and do it himself. Now, he didn't burn up. So Azariah the priest went in after him. And with him were 80 priests of the Lord. Valent men, it says. That's 81 people against one king. 81 priests came together against one mad king. Mad in the sense that he's insane at this particular moment. And they withstood King Uzziah. And said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron. Now, I imagine he usually had quite an entourage with him. But if you were part of the king's entourage and the king is entering into the part of the temple you're not supposed to be in, I imagine if he had an entourage, they probably stayed back. You're in your own king. You're going in there. That's not a place we're supposed to go to. We can't. Maybe you're the king. You can get away with it. But you know, we can't. We're going to die if we go in there. We're just going to wait out here. 
So they're probably only withstanding one person, not a whole entourage. But they withstood him. A king who had the power back in these days, you know, the, the key didn't have to take a vote. Here you just say, kill this one. And they would be dead. It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priest, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed, and you have no honor from the Lord God. Now, I don't know if this is a, a direct quote. It sure seems like it's a direct quote. He does not call him king. He says, says they withstood King Uzziah. But he just refers to him as Uzziah. I would think that's kind of a no-no in those days. A lot of times, you know, you have a, a, a prophet coming to the king and they, they O king. <laughs> o king. They're very, very reverent. Don't even use his name. O king. But here... It just says, it is not for you, Uzziah, <laughs> to burn incense to the Lord. He could have just left that out and just said, it's not for you to burn incense to the Lord. But no, we're going to call you by your first name because you're acting stupid. <laughs> it's but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary. There's no request here. For you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah became furious. Nothing worse than a mad dictator. <laughs> Nothing worse than that. And he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. He had gone that far. He had the censer in the hand. And while he was angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him. And there on his forehead, he was leprous. So they thrust him out of the place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. So now you got the 81 pushing him and him running. <laughs> what a scene that must have been, huh? Oh, I don't know exactly where they get this, but you know the, uh, the, the verse of Scripture that talked about the, uh, the great earthquake that happened during the days of Uzziah. Uh, there were a few people who put the earthquake at the same time as this incident. And I have no idea where they got that from, whether there's anything in the historic. I couldn't figure out what... They, they never substantiated it. But that was that was out there. The, um, the earthquake occurred somewhere around 760, which was around the time that he was reigning by himself. So, I don't know. It is possible, but I don't know that... Uh, I would think that if it would have happened, it would have been in the account. But it's not... But they quickly got him out, thrust him out of that place. And he hurried to get out himself. So the Lord showed him, this is, this is serious. You're not going to think this leprosy came on you for any other reason than the fact that you rose up and came into this place and tried to do something that you were not supposed to do. See, his heart got lifted up. He began to think, I'm such a good king, I can also be a good priest. And that, God was not in the mix in those roles. You're a king. You be a king. Priests will be a priest. They're not going to step over here into into this area. But he didn't. Uh, he didn't take to that. He entered the temple of the Lord with the wrong heart and a wrong purpose. He left the temple of God with the wrong stuff. You don't want to have leprosy on you. That's just not something you want to have. 
So he goes on verse 21. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. From then on, there was, if he repented, it, it didn't get removed. It stayed with him. He was a leper until the day of his death. Somewhere, if the historians have this account right, somewhere around 11 years. 11 years he would have had a, this leprosy. And leprosy spreads. So it may have started on his forehead and began to spread to other places. It may have been the reason that he died. The leprosy was, may have been something that took his life. We're not really told a whole lot about that. But he dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper. For he was cut off from the house of the Lord. So up till now, some of these kings, they've had harems. They've had a bunch of uh, wives. He, he didn't have a bunch of wives. He didn't have one. His, he couldn't see his kids. He uh, couldn't see other people. He couldn't go to the house of the Lord anymore. He, he couldn't have visitors. He was, he was in isolation. Cut off from the house of the Lord, from the people of God, from the priests, all this. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. So Jotham came in, and for those 11 years, he was actually king, even though Uzziah is still considered the king. Maybe they sent to ask for some things, but there's no way that he's as involved as he was before. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz, wrote. And there was a, a, a several uh, prophets. You know, you, we think of uh, Isaiah... And Isaiah started in chapter 1, verse 1. He talks about the different kings that were in place during the time that he was there. Uzziah is one of the ones that was listed. In chapter 6, in verse 1, in the, y'all know the scripture, in the year Uzziah died. That's early on in, in uh, his ministry as he's beginning to do things. In the year Uzziah died. It's, uh, and the rest of that went on. But uh, there were, Amos was one who, who prophesied during this, this time. Hosea was one who prophesied during this time. Whether they had a word for, for him in there, but during that during their reign is when they were they were prophesying. When they were ministering. So Uzziah rested with his fathers and they buried him with his fathers in the field of burial, which belongs to the kings, for they said he is a leper. So he didn't quite get buried exactly where all the other kings were, but they still buried him in the field where the kings were, but because he was a leper that's, that's what had to be done. So this, this guy had taken Israel from a place of being beat up to a place of have conquered the enemies around, brought in a lot of the wealth, brought uh, a place of uh, prosperity back to here. In fact, it would be the greatest point of prosperity for Israel in this part of their history until the time of Hezekiah. Hezekiah would surpass it. But up until, up until then, of course, since Solomon, from Solomon until now, this is the most prosperous, from what we uh, have been, been told by the historians, the most prosperous that, that Judah, the land of Judah, had become. So that's something that's uh, for under, under his belt, so to speak, one of his uh, uh, feathers in his cap. The, the things he did with the army, the inventions that he came up, the fortifications that he did, the cities he built in the areas of the enemies, all this stuff... And what's on his tomb? He was a leper. And why was he a leper? Because his heart got lifted up and he did what he wasn't supposed to do. And Uzziah became isolated. Now this is the plan of the enemy. This is what he tries to do. He tries to first off get us cut off. He wants to get us cut off from the things that stabilize us. He wants to get you cut off, as we gave you before the list, from the word. Whatever is going to come into your life, 
and bring the word to you. And we've got a lot more sources than we've ever had before, don't we? We've got TV as a source for the word. We've got uh, podcasts as a source for the word. We've got CDs as a source for the word. You can get DVDs from services that uh, were someplace else uh, if you're up to it. Uh, Rama puts their, they have their Winter Bible Seminar going on right now. And you can get on, you can watch that via the internet if you'd like to. Uh, the morning sessions, they have two morning sessions, the afternoon session, and then the evening session. You can tune in there and, and get a hold of that. I believe you can even go back and, and check out some of the, Brother Doug was ministering on Monday morning, if anybody wants to go back there and, and see that. But our, these are ways that we can get to, get, get the word. We can see people who have churches in other states and, and get the word that, that's going on there. And the devil wants to do some things to cut us off from these, these sources, from sources that would bring the word, from people who would pray for us properly, from people that would be good friends, from people who are good encouragers, from people who would be correcting. All these things that come into our life, there are people around. And I've heard people, uh, other pastors, they talk about it. They say, well, so-and-so was in the church. They got born again. They were growing up. Things were going well. And then they got a job offer to go someplace else to another state. Never checked out whether there was any churches to go to in there. Just uh, took the job and moved. Got more money. And then began to go down, 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 down spiritually. Because they were cut off from all these things. They didn't have those things going on anymore. And that's what the devil wants to get us to do. He wants to get us cut off from those sources that come in and stabilize us. We have to be careful that we don't, we don't let that go on. Sometimes it's just uh, we can get offended. Uh, you know, we, we like this one minister over here. They're doing some things, and, well, they didn't respond to us the way that we wanted to, them to respond to us. Or, you know, we sent them a letter, or we did something, and we thought they would have done this, or we thought they would have done that, and they didn't do that. And the enemy comes in, and he begins to say, oh, they don't like you. Oh, you're just, you shouldn't be, be doing that anymore. He wants to get you cut off. That's the first thing. He's going to work on getting you cut off because until he gets the source of your strength cut off, he cannot pull you down. What was the attack against Samson? What, where does his strength come from and how can we cut it off? And so Delilah was sent in. Don't even know that she liked the guy. And uh, he would say one thing, and well, that wasn't it. And he would say another thing, and that wasn't it. And she used her tears, and she used her charms, and she finally got it out of him what it was. They cut off his hair, and they cut off the, the source. And once they did, they took everything away from him. The devil wants to get you cut off. Promises you all kinds of things, but wants to get you cut off. Once he gets you cut off, now these other sources are not coming in to feed the humility that God loves. And he wants to get you puffed up how good you are, how much you deserve, how lucky God is, all these kind of things. Once he gets you cut off, he can get you puffed up. Then he wants you to carry on. I put in parentheses here, raise hell. Because <laughs> that's what you basically you've been doing. Once he gets you cut off, puffed up, then he just wants you to carry on. Just act up. Just be bad. And do things because you think you can, because you think you should, because whatever it is, you know, like, like uh, Uzziah does, goes into the temple to burn incense. Why is that going to help him? 
This is, is his whole life missing something because he hasn't been able to burn incense? But now he's suddenly thinking that. And so now that we got him cut off, we've puffed him up, and now we can get him to carry on and go out there and to do something that, uh, that isn't right. This is the strategy that goes all the way back in, older in the Old Testament. And you remember the children of Israel, they're going, wandering through the wilderness? And Balaam came on the scene. Well, the curses didn't work. And so he said, this is what you need to do. We need to get them cut off from, from God. So lure the men into this kind of uh, illicit relationship with your women. And that will bring them into, you know, get them to carry on. Get them to act up. And that will get them cut off from the sources where they were. They'd already cut off a lot of that. They weren't receiving from Moses the things that they should be receiving. They weren't receiving from God the things they were, should be receiving from God. They were not encouraging each other the way they should be encouraging. Probably begin to think, well, we deserve this. And they're out there carrying on. Once that happens, he'll get us to check out. Either check out physically and, and go on, or we just check out from God. People have fallen off. They've gone away. But that's the enemy's plan. But it all starts with getting us to cut ourselves off. And he'll tell us, you know, you don't need this. This isn't important. This is, uh, you, you're good enough on your own. You don't need other people to help you. They're not helping you anyway. All these kind of things will begin to come on in. And we begin to think, I don't need anyone. I'm good by myself. If he fails at getting you cut off. Nothing else succeeds. He can't get you puffed up if there are people in your life to correct you. Can't get that done. He's got to get you cut off from these, these folks. Well, these people over here, they're going to keep him in line. How many times do we see it in the, in the Word of God? Jeroboam, Rehoboam. They, didn't, they, they cut themselves off from the people who would help him. Rehoboam said he went to the, to the people who counseled his father. Can you imagine being counseled to Solomon? Talk about intimidation. <laughs> but he took some of the people who were counselors to his father and he listened to what they had to say. Nah, that's no good. Let me go get my buddies. Let's see what they had to say. And he cut off the good source. And he listened to the buddies and what they get him done? What'd they get done for him? They puffed him up. He began to think, my father, he was nothing. I got more in my little finger than my father had in his whole body. And he found out he didn't have any people left. And they all, all decided to leave him, except for Judah. What? And understand, this is what's going on. Right now, for every single one of us, right, right at this moment, the enemy is trying to get you cut off. Cut off from something. He's trying to do it. Because that's his plan of attack. That's what he does. I'm not saying this is brand new for today. It was happening last week. It was happening last year. It was happening 10 years ago. He is constantly trying to get you cut off. He will try and work against these stabilizing forces. If that's not working, he may take a break from them and work on these stabilizing forces. Then if that's not going to work, he may take a break from that and come over here to these stabilizing forces. And eventually he'll make his way back to some of the other ones. Let's see if we can get anything going on over here yet. Let's see what's happening in this, in this area. Just like little kids. What do little kids do? We're always testing the boundaries. Can I get away with this today? 
couldn't get away with it yesterday. Maybe today I can get away with it. And so they try it again and, and to, to, to get away with it. They're always testing, always trying to do things. But right now, the enemy is trying to get you cut off. He will sow thoughts about people that have been your counselors, thoughts about people who have been your encouragers, thoughts about people who are sowing into you for whatever this, the, the, so they've been put in your life to sow into you for. Are you going to let him have success in cutting you off? I've seen people, they, uh, they've, they've taken different jobs and all of a sudden the word can't, they can't get as much word in them as they, they were before. And it's never said anything sudden. Just understand, it's never anything sudden. Once, you, once the cutoff is there, he'll back off for a little bit. All right, we got him cut off. Now let's just wait for a little while. The, he'll begin to weaken and weaken a little bit more and weaken a little bit more. And we can, all right, now we're ready. Let's go in and let's hit it. That's how he does things. He's very patient. But he is working to cut you off. He has sown thoughts. He has sown people. But if we spot the attack, if we recognize the attack, if we see where it's coming from, what do we do? Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. I'm not letting that thing be cut off. I'm going to keep that person. Because I... I'll tell you, well, I don't know about how you, you did with this, but um, I think I shared this story with you before. Back in David Ingalls' church, and David Ingalls had these people in, in church, and they were, they were intercessors. It was my first exposure to intercessors. They were, I saw some other people who went by the name intercessors. And I came up with this conclusion. Intercessors are weird. That was my conclusion. Intercessors are weird people. If you're going to be an intercessor, you must first be a weird person. If not, you will become a weird person. Because every single intercessor I knew was weird. They were not normal. They didn't talk normal. They didn't pray normal. They didn't act normal. I almost was ready to say, God, God, I don't want those kind of people in my life. <laughs> but then I found some normal intercessors. I said, dear Lord, there are some good ones out there. <laughs> I don't know where these other ones came from or that, what it was, but I'll tell you what, they was... It was just, it was very strange. You, you don't need to have, you know, if you can become an intercessor or a praying person, it doesn't need to change your personality. You don't need to talk differently. You don't need to pronounce words differently. Um, all those kind of crazy things are going on. But if you have people in your life and they are prayers and they are counselors, the devil may sow some things. There's a weirdness about them. You see that about that's They're weird. Stay away from that. Just trying to get you to, Get a little distance between you and them. And you know what? We're all a little bit weird. Amen. We're all a little bit odd in some of the things that we do. You know, just embrace it. <laughs> just embrace it. You know, my family constantly tells me how weird I am. I was getting ready on the Saturday of the blizzard. I was getting my stuff on, going out to run. My daughter turned to me and she goes, Dad, you know you're weird. <laughs> I said, I know. <laughs> See you later. No, just just some things you can just embrace. I can just embrace that. That's a, that's a weird part of uh, about me in in that way. And uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of weird things that we do. Just embrace it. You know, the way I eat, the things I eat, it's a little bit weird to other people. <clears throat> the way you eat, the things you eat, a little bit weird to me. It's a little bit weird to, me. but that's all right. We don't have to let the weirdness of each other, you know. <laughs> 
distance us on, on these things. But that's what the devil wants to try and get to do. He wants us to get, you know, sameness. No, if they're not this way, if they're not the same as, as me, no, I can't. That's wrong. Don't, don't let the devil do it. Just know, know this. Of all the people that are on this earth, God loved each one enough that he gave his son. If God loved them enough to give his son, then you can love them enough to give him place in your life. Don't let the devil sow thoughts into your life, into your mind, cause you to become separated from those forces that are there to stabilize you. There are things, people, in your life, in place right now, and more are to come who are there to stabilize you and to help you along the way. Don't let them go. There will always be reasons to be suspicious of people. But what's the Word of God say? How should we do that? How should we handle the things that cause us to be suspicious about people? Real, real clear. In 1 Corinthians, it says, Believe the best. Believe the best. That's what you do. Just believe the best. Why? Did you hear that they said this and they did this? Well, they may have, but who, who knows? In malice, be as, <laughs> be as babes. Don't, don't, don't trust it. Don't believe it. Because this is, how, this is the tactic of the enemy. If we know the tactic of the enemy, we should never fall for it. <laughs> never. Not once. And yet, constantly, we see Christians that are falling for this. Don't fall for the tactic of the enemy. He will, he is, and will continue to try and isolate you, especially from those forces that stabilize you the most. Don't let them do it. Fight hard to keep hold of those things because they are the things that have gotten you where you are and will keep you on the right path going forward. Mm-hmm. Father, we thank you for those forces that are in our life that stabilize us. Those forces that are in our life that teach us the word, that pray, that counsel, that encourage, that our friends offer friendship. Oh, Father, we just thank you for these Forces that are in our life. You've put them there. They have a purpose. And though they're human, have failures just like we do, they are still people that have a purpose in our life. Help us never to lose sight of that. The enemy wants us to focus on their shortcomings. You want us to focus on what they bring into our life. Depending upon which one we choose to focus on, would depend upon where we go from here on out. For there is not a single one in this room, there's not a single person on the face of this earth who does not have the potential to fall away. But if we keep the stabilizing forces that you put in our life in place, we won't fall away. We thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.